Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Bridget. And this is Policy Talks. So on June 20th, Policy Talks was fortunate enough to be given the chance to record the Defense Review Review, Canada's new defense policy under the microscope, hosted by the Centre for Security, Intelligence and Defense Studies at Carleton University. And after this, stay tuned to our website for our roundtable, the review of the review of the Defense Policy Review. We promise it's worth it. All right, let's jump into the panel. Thank you very much for coming out on this lovely Tuesday morning to talk about defense, the aptly named Defense Review Review. Um, So basically, I think we can say fairly certainly that this was a highly anticipated document, if only because it was maybe six months late. Um, No no hard, no foul. But I mean, what what I think was remarkable about its release is, was the foreign policy speech given by Christia Freeland, which uh, acknowledged a radically shifting context. And then, so to have this document kind of contextualized in that was was really remarkable. And so it hopefully will lead to some good discussion today. In some ways, we've seen a lot of changes in this document, if not the inclusion of a a gender chapter, which which was remarkable. But it's also, we've seen a lot of continuation of of policies. And I think, you know, some of us were in the defense lockup um, when when it was being released. And one of the comments going around was that, you know, you know, if you if you didn't know who the government was at the time, could you have even, aside from the gender chapter, could you have even really known that this was actually a liberal document? Uh, because we have seen a lot of um, things from before, but uh, I think the argument was that it was more costed, even if there aren't timelines in the actual document themselves. So the goal today is really to kind of talk along five themes. I think I have a clicker here. I will abuse. So uh, we have an an amazing panel, and actually I'm going to give credit to Andrea Sharon, who is our coordinator exceptional, who who really did put this together uh, and and has done such a wonderful job. But basically we're going to be looking at these five themes, uh, domestic analysis, the budget aspects of it. Um, Actually, I have to say, I was in the lockup watching Dave Perry literally stalk the defense people around with his numbers (laughs) going around. So if someone has crunched the numbers, it is this man here. Um, uh, Stephen Sademan is going to be speaking about threats. Eleanor Sloan will be speaking about expeditionary analysis. And Al Stevenson will be speaking about force readiness. And if anyone cares about drones or cyber, I can probably throw in some comments too. Um, So each panelist is going to have approximately 10 minutes to present their uh, issue area. And then after, and and I have uh, permission to use whatever force necessary to stop people at the 10 minute mark. So um, you'll see, it'll probably involve a pencil. Um, But, you know, hopefully you won't resort to that. Uh, I will give you a, a two minute warning. Uh, one minute warning, and then I will ask you to stop. After that, we will be taking Q&A from the audience. Really looking forward to your questions. So with that, uh, let's go with Andrea. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, so my area is going to look at the defense of Canada and the defense of North America. And so that's the lane I have to stay in when it comes time to evaluating this defense policy. And I have two goals. The first is I want to give some overarching comments about the defense policy vis-a-vis Defense of Canada and North America. And then I want to look at three specific areas, uh, the Arctic, NORAD, and aid of civil authorities and search and rescue, which I sort of put together. So first of all, to my four general comments as they relate to this document and the domestic scene. First of all, I think 
for all the talk that uh, we've heard from this government about Canada's back, a lot of reflection on what will be future missions overseas, especially a potential UN mission, from my perspective, the defense of Canada has been the big winner in this defense policy. And as Stephanie said, that's rather surprising because liberal governments tend to focus more on the away game than they do on the home game. So that would be my, my first comment. Related, uh, because the defense of Canada and North America is the focus, what we see is a lot of attention and detail to what I call the connective tissue elements of the Canadian Armed Forces, which are often forgotten about and marginalized. And by that, I mean things like attention to communication, cryptography, intelligence, domain awareness. These are all deep in the weed things that if they're done well, become force multipliers. If they're marginalized or forgotten about, literally the wheels can fall off the bus. And so uh, for me, that was very noteworthy. The third general comment is that in many ways we're going back to Cold War language and Cold War um, philosophies. Now that is not to say that we're in a Cold War, nor do I think we're on our way to a Cold War, but this defense policy, compared with other defense policies, really resembles more the 1964 defense policy than it does the 2008, when it comes to the defense of Canada and North America. And that's because we're th seeing things like a return to um, anti-submarine warfare and lots of mention of deterrence and the world order and how it's going to shake out. And finally, the fourth comment I would make is that there is nothing that I see vis-a-vis -vis NORAD, the Arctic, or aid of the civil powers that doesn't predate Trump. Things like the Arctic offshore patrol vessels, thinking about how to evolve and modernize NORAD. Um, none of this is brand new. There are a few little elements, but for the most part, these things have been exercised, thought about, and even started pre-Trump. So now to my three areas. First, NORAD, and I would sum up the theme of NORAD as evolving and modernizing. I think we're all familiar with what it means to modernize. Uh, certainly the North Warning System is one of the biggest elements. The North Warning System is made up of short and long-range radar, and it's actually the short-range radar that is due to uh, end their life in 2025. I sort of picture radar sort of and falling over. But they're the ones that have to be definitely replaced. And now is an opportune time to think about the whole North Warning system. Is it adequate? For example, it is essentially designed for air breathing threats of a certain speed and a certain height. And as soon as you get threats that are either low-lying and fast-moving or low-lying and slow-moving, the North Warning System is of little value. So certainly thinking about what we're going to do for that. There's also the 88 promised new uh, fighter aircraft. Um, 
a portion of them will definitely be earmarked for NORAD. In fact, that's one of the big impetuses for having that, uh, these new fighter jets. Next year, NORAD reaches 60 years, and now is the time to think about, do we have the right command and control systems in place? Now, this has been exercised and changed uh, in many ways in what we call exercise vigilant shield that happens usually in the fall. One of the ideas now is to have one theater force commander, um, it seems, possibly out of Tyndall, Florida, to run all the air tasking orders. Now, for most people, it'll be like, ah, 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 who cares? Uh, for the military, what they're always looking for is that one belly button to push in terms of uh, defense management and battle management in terms of what are the air tasking orders. For Canada, though, we need to think through what are the ramifications of this potential move. Another one is the lack of cruise missile uh, defenses that we have. We note that in the defense policy it says categorically the ballistic missile decision of 2005, which in essence was a non-decision, um, not to participate in ballistic missile defense, that's been decided. But cruise missile defense is something that I see between the lines. First, uh, in the latest exercise Vigilant Shield, we had Boeing Avengers come to North Bay, and Boeing Avengers um, are uh, ground-based, self-propelled surface-to-air missile systems that are particularly good with uh, short-range uh, air defense against cruise missiles, unarmed aerial vehicles, uh, fixed-wing aircraft, and helicopters. For the Arctic, the theme here is domain awareness, and that's because Canada's Arctic region is immense. It comprises some 40% of Canada's overall landmass and 75% of the coastline. So much of the uh, defense policy is focused on things like having next generation surveillance aircraft, remotely piloted systems or drones, and that's um, in the air and in the sea. A new satellite for RadarSat, which is actually a constellation of satellites, which will give us a much better sense of what is happening in the Arctic. And all of this is going to create a systems of systems so that we can get real flow of information in which to make uh, decisions about exercises and operations. For me, one of the most interesting, innovative ideas, and you know, it's one of those, why hadn't we done this before, is the fact that Canada's air defense identification zone will move out to match our sovereign territory. So before, we would limit the air identification zone to sort of the extent and reach of the North Warning System, which is much further south. So that's going to mean quite a, a, a big change. Uh, for most Canadians, you're not going to notice anything. And uh, the nice thing about that change is that um, it, it, the, the costs um, are, are manageable, uh, I, I think. Uh, the other thing is that we're going to have improvements to the Arctic in terms of joint intelligence and surveillance. We note the Rangers will continue to have their mandate. Thank you. Um, and we see that in uh, Canadian Forces Alert, under the command of the Royal Canadian Air Force, which is a signals intelligence facility right at the top of uh, Canada's territory, that is set for some upgrades. But all of this is 
really going to enhance domain awareness. The final area is aid of the civil power, um, and that's to deal with what I call Canada's three horsemen, sort of floods, fires, and freezing rain. Uh, and it's when, for instance, provinces and territories, when they need extra assistance, can call on the Department of Defense uh, for assistance. Here we see really a status quo. I don't see a change in terms of the expectations for search and rescue or aid of the civil powers. Rapid disaster response is still going to be something that Canada works on. Uh, protection of cyber assets and also we're looking at things like new radio cryptography. So in theory, uh, this defense policy, which is good for the next 20 years, for any of you in uniform or any of you working at Department of Defense, this is going to define the rest of your career. I think the biggest challenge, though, is going to be absorbing all of these changes and some of the uh, expectations. It's a bit like trying to drink from a fire hose or change the tire of a, uh, of, uh, on a car when it's still running. So I think that's going to be the biggest challenge. Thank you. Great, thank you for that, and thanks for staying on time. Next, we have Dave Perry, who will be speaking on budgetary issues. Okay, and is taking off his watch so that he tries to stay on time, too. Um, so, this document um, is interesting and very similar to the last one in a lot of different ways. Um, it's another 20-year long-term spending commitment. Some of the political massaging around this document was saying that this is a long-term spending plan for the first time which is complete bupkis, because the last uh, defense policy promised a long-term 20-year spending plan. That was good for a full 20 months before the recession last time started unpacking it. Uh, so I guess we're going to see how this one does. Um, I was actually pretty surprised about how much money was actually in this, though, for a government that ran on a campaign to effectively just maintain their existing spending levels. So regardless of what's in here or not and how much it actually stacks up on an annual basis, it exceeds what the government campaigned on. Um, which is good in some ways because it's addressing a lot of deficiencies, uh, but it's potentially negative in some other ones because I think, and get into the question about intent and whether or not this money is really going to be there, um, I would have some concern about a party that uh, would has done something in office that's fairly significantly different than what they campaigned on, campaigned on, uh, and then in terms of how that ties into their uh, electoral fortunes, uh, not sure exactly how that stacks up with their base from the last election. I'm going to try and walk through about uh, six or seven points on the money and then just kind of get to a brief set of comments about the procurement because Andrew asked me to talk about that as well. So this is, in the aggregate, over 20 years. It's big money overall, um, although it's a relatively small and grossly exaggerated change over the previous money that had been there. So it's big money overall because defense has a huge budget, and if you stretch it over 20 years, then you get a, an enormous number no matter um, how much of a relatively small or large increase it is. And the money, I think, it, it can divide it into to basically two, two types here. Some of it is new, new money. So it's new money for new projects. There's 33-ish uh, billion dollars on an accrual basis. If anybody wants to get into the accounting geek stuff, there's a full six or seven pages in this document laying out all that stuff in great detail. But the accrual basis is really like the most interesting one to compare it by because that's the basis on which the last policy was published, so that was the only place where you can really do much of a compare and contrast. And it's also what really affects the budget from a, a fiscal point of view, because that's what the Department of Finance manages. 
So there's $33 billion um, for new, new equipment projects and another $15 billion, again, on an accrual basis for uh, operating expenses, of which about $9 billion is for people. There's also been a bunch of changes which were um, embedded in the document that were um, enacted by the last budget but not actually explained or elaborated, and that's to do a bunch of reorganization with um, the existing envelope that D&D had before this defense policy, which saw them make a bunch of changes and then reallocate a bunch of their money internally. So that's kind of new money to old projects from the old supply line. And that's where you see the doubling of the budget for CSC, more than doubling of the budget from, for C, from CSC to 26.2 to 56 to $60 billion. And also where you saw the effective doubling of the budget for the future fighter capability. So those are, from what I can understand, that's basically changes that were made to reallocate money that was within the existing supply that D&D had to begin with. There's a bunch of other things in here that are beneficial long-term. Um, they've locked in the 3% escalator, which had been set to time expire previously. So that's good. Uh, that'll actually mean that there's a continuing um, increase over time. They've also done some stuff to clean up the sources of, of capital funding, which is, would be beneficial too, just for the sake of clarity, and, and also hopefully some uh, provide some small improvement to expediency because there won't be any discussions back and forth with central agencies about where money has to come from or not. The real big winner here, and I think where the, the, at least in my assessment, where the actual demand was before the review is that uh, there's a very significant change proposed to uh, how much money is available for capital, both infrastructure and equipment. Over the long term, um, this is going to see, if it actually happens, a paradigm shift in how much money is av available to buy new kit and buildings. So it's going to see cap the share of the defense budget in cash terms, sorry, so the share of defense spending in cash terms go from about 20, sorry, 12 to 15% of the budget over the last five years to immediately 30%. And within seven years, go to above 40% of the capital budget, of the overall defense budget going towards capital. For the sake of comparison, the last time Canada spent anywhere close to 40% on capital uh, was when we were in Korea. So this is a massive and totally um, paradigm shifting change if it actually comes to pass. So quick thing about how some of this, uh, these changes are, are, are really being over, oversold. If you go back and compare this to the uh, Canada First Defense strategy, by the same year that the CFTS was set to expire, uh, there's going to be something like four or five billion dollars less under this plan than there would have under CFTS. So the, the amount of increase needs to be put in context. Um, there's also a bunch of exaggerations in here that, so the way that the writing around the 70% increase in, in cash spending over the next seven years was very carefully written because it's not 70% more money as a result of this policy. It's a 70% change if you were to have made what I think are some extraordinarily pessimistic assumptions and only gone, gone ahead and looked at the projection forward, assuming that major projects which were planned to happen didn't get Treasury Board authorization to spend money. So even just assuming that some of the basic budget plans had stuck to, to the pattern that they were on before, there would have been at least a six to seven million dollar increase in the budget on an annual basis had nothing changed. Um, so there's an increase over time, but a lot of it's old money that's being recycled. Um, and despite a lot of the transparency that's in this budget, which is commendable, there's a bunch of things here which are, are kind of fudged. It's also interesting if you look um, in a historical comparison, so the share of GDP, uh, of which there's going to, there's been much discussion, including by some of my panelists here, 
think this document ends once and for all the discussion of whether or not the share of GDP matters. They devoted an entire freaking page of this thing to laying out exactly how we stack up as a share of GDP. <laughs> so for a government that spent uh, more than a year arguing that this is not the measure against which we should be compared, they then spent an entire page laying out exactly how we stack up. So they fiddled around with the formula, so I'm going to ignore the extra 0.2% uh, increase because that's historically um, uh, idiosyncratic. If you just look on a consistent basis, we're going to be at going back to about 1.2% of GDP um, being spent on the military. So it's not 2%. Um, and in interestingly, that would put us back in the window where we were between 1999 and 2006. So that's at the end of the Mulroney and then Cretchen era cuts, and right before the big increase that Paul Martin brought in uh, kicked in. That's relatively where we're going back uh, to in those terms. In terms of a big picture take about whether or not this money is adequate enough, it's hard to say because despite some specifics and an overall macro plan, there's no detail on any of the, the actual projects here, almost none. Uh, and they're effectively relying on the Defense Acquisition Guide, which as of 50 minutes ago, had not been updated for this year to provide any of the specifics about the individual projects. Um, so there's a broad discussion of capability, but beyond that, there's not, uh, not much detail. But to, to segue into where things are going to go with, with procurement, so again, to go back to the comment I made earlier, if this actually happens, this will be a complete paradigm shift in Canada in terms of defense procurement. So to give you some historical uh, perspective and look at where this is supposed to be going, uh, in constant dollars, which I deflated using the defense economic model, in Canada, in, in the last 30 years, procurement peaked at $4.5 billion annually in 2010-2011. It's then declined progressively on an annual basis, cash spending, to $3.2 billion for 2015-2016, the last year for which there's fi final year-end numbers. This plan would see the capital spending go immediately to $6 billion, and then with seven years go, within seven years go to over $12 billion, and stay at that level, going up to close to $13 billion for about five years. So that's projecting a fourfold increase in what the department and the government can actually spend in less than a decade. If you look back at what happened after the Martin and Harper increases, that basically uh, allowed the department to go to just over um, 100% increase. And then they couldn't be sustained. This is projecting that we go to an almost 400% increase in spending and then stay there for multiple years. Uh, if you look at what's planned in terms of the procurement uh, initiatives that are gonna make this happen, uh, it's effectively a reannouncement of stuff that happened many years ago. One's a project approval initiative that was announced in 2012 and was just approved. A bunch of other things are just re-announcements of the same things that uh, the Conservative government announced in 2014. So I would describe everything on that list that's supposedly going to make this massive paradigm shift happen as tinkering. Uh, and I simply don't, I don't really see a path forward that would allow this kind of paradigm shift to happen. So I think amongst all the parts of the implementation of this, which I think are, remain to be identified, and this is the one where I think there's the most glaring weaknesses, because I just don't see a route forward to actually executing on this funding. Thanks. Okay, great, thank you. And now I'm gonna ask Steve Sademan, who is insanely jet-lagged, to speak about threats. So this could be potentially very entertaining. 
I'm trying to figure out whether you set high expectations or low ones. Um, there's a lot to say about this document. Uh, and what was really interesting was the ordering of the document, because usually you would set the threat part first to justify the rest of the document. Uh, the world's dangerous. We need to spend more money. Instead, it was, we need to spend more money. We need to focus on gender. We need to focus on personnel. We need to focus on this, that, the other thing. And oh, by the way, the world's really dangerous. Uh, so that was really striking. I was a participant, along with several of the people on the panel, with, at last year's series of, of events related to the Defense Review, including an official roundtable as well as a parliament, the, the Defense Opposition's, uh, defense, yeah, the opposition's uh, roundtable, uh, informal events, and all the rest. And um, if there's one consensus we have about Canada's place in the world is it's actually not bad. Uh, despite the best efforts of the folks who wrote this document, the world is not that threatening to Canada. It is threatening to lots of other places. I just came back from East Asia, and Japan uh, is under a th great threat. Um, at the time I arrived, there were actually two or three aircraft carriers floating around the, the uh, Sea of Japan, so I was pondering whether I was going to be there to watch the next world war start as, as Trump was making threats to North Korea. Uh, so, and, that, and then Japan was going to be a not-so-innocent bystander as it would receive the missiles that North Korea would be sending their way. So we need to put this into context. Canada's security situation is still very, very good. The document goes through a variety of threats, and I'll talk about a few in general, but let me speak to the three things that stand out most in Canada's position today. The reality is the only real military threat, the only harm that other countries can do to Canada directly is cyber. Canada is under cyber attack today. It's been under cyber attack yesterday. It'll be under cyber attack tomorrow. Uh, and that has a partial, it's partially a military issue. Uh, this is where the, today, my running argument with Stephanie about what is national security, uh, where our Venn diagram joins because cyber is something that the civilians take seriously and have, there's a lot of gov government stuff to deal with that and the military takes seriously. And so in terms of that, issue of cyber, there is military equities here, and we see that in the document. They, they played up cyber attacks. There's, when we speak about new money in the document, one of the basic tendencies uh, within the document is that there weren't many hard choices made, and I'll talk about that in a minute. And so in order to have new money, you actually have to spend new money, and uh, to do something new, such as cyber, you actually need to allocate new people because you can't take old people from some of their tasks because that would require some uh, tussling. And so what we see in the document is one of the most specific things about it is new people to do cyber. New people, new money. Uh, so that's a real relationship between the external threat world and the document. Cyber more of a threat today than it was 10, 20 years ago, obviously. Now we're actually going to have some people do it. And there's some other stuff in the document as well about uh, changing standards of readiness so that people who are, might be good at cyber may not have to be all that good at, at lifting large, heavy things and carrying them through battlefields. Uh, the second piece of the document talks about terrorism and non-state actors. Uh, this is something that Canada has been grappling with. Canada was involved in a war in Afghanistan for quite some time. Um, but the reality of terrorism today is for the threat to Canada itself is, a is mostly a police thing and not a military thing. That is, if terrorism happens in Canada, there's a military side to it, of course, uh, some of the stuff that uh, Andrea was talking about, aid to civil power and all the rest, but it's really a police job, it's an intelligence job. Uh, and again, the threat of terrorism to Canadians thus far has been relatively low um, compared to all other kinds of sources of death and destruction that we experience. Um, then there's Trump. 
When we talk about the international environment, the biggest threat to Canada right now is Donald Trump. Because Canadian defense depends on the United States. And the United States is now incredibly unreliable in pretty much every dimension, thanks to the President of the United States. And there's not anything the Canadian military can do about it. It's a, it's a political thing, it's not a military thing. But it, it shakes the very foundation of Canadian defense. And what's striking about this document, which was supposedly held on to, in part to deal with this new event, is as Andrea uh, stole my thunder, this document could have been written on November 7th. There's nothing in it about Trump. There's nothing in it about thinking about ways of acting in the world without the United States. There, the NORAD chapter is the same. The NATO sections are the same. The UN stuff is all the same. There's nothing in here that reads as if the United States is no longer as reliable as it was before November 8th. There's just nothing. And it makes sense in a lot of ways, but there's nothing. And the good news, uh, just as a tangent from this, is the strategy of the document worked, which is Donald Trump has a very selective attention span, and so they went, wow, $70 billion in new money, or 70, I'm sorry, 70% growth in defense is, is the way it was phrased. He bought into that. He didn't notice the magic page that says Canada is not aspiring to get to 2%, uh, which was the original NATO commitment. Not to get to 2%, but to aspire to 2%. This document does not even aspire to 2%. The, the NATO number for 2024 is 1.4% if you buy the new math, 1.2% if you buy the old math. None of those is 2%. So Canada's basically saying, forget that, which is fine, uh, but it's striking. There was, no, there was no real massaging of that reality. Um, and Trump, being uh, the selective attention guy he is, was like 70% more money, great. Uh, I'm still not convinced he understands that Canada's in NATO, so maybe uh, that's a, another reason why he's not using the 2% number for us. Uh, in the document itself, it goes through a variety of trends in bold. There's a evolving balance of power. Yes, the United States is in relative decline, China's in relative ascendancy, Russia is more annoying than it has been in quite some time, even if it's actually in real decline. Uh, it makes American decline look silly compared to what Russia's decline really looks like. And the reality is that Canada can't do anything about that. Canada can't really affect the balance of power. We're just too small. Uh, our military is too small to make a big difference in any way. We can contribute when asked, but we cannot really change the balance of power. Uh, there's a changing nature of conflict that, that, that is discussed. But what well, we've experienced that. We experienced the changing nature of conflict when we fought an insurgency uh, over the course of, of several years in Afghanistan. Um, there's nothing in the document that really says that the Canadian military is going to look different in dealing with this changing nature of conflict except for the cyber stuff. There's not going to be a change in the uh, military doctrine. There's not going to be a change in the force structure towards dealing with these new threats, um, except for a little bit more money and people for SOF, for Canadian Special Operations. So there's that. There's a discussion about the revolu re uh, rapid revolution of technology as a threat, and indeed there's more money for, uh, for and policy on cyber and space stuff. Of all this stuff, there's not a whole lot really in, in terms of the global changes. The only thing that really uh, Canada is reacting to today and is probably going to react to for the next 20 years is this reemergence of deterrence. Andrea brought it up. What it specifically means is that NATO is back to its Cold War game of trying to deter that thing from the East, what used to be known as the Soviet Union and is now Russia. That is the role of Canada. And this week, 
we've had lots of ceremonies in Latvia where we've shown up uh, as leader of the framework, uh, as the framework nation in Latvia as part of the NATO effort to deter uh, Vladimir Putin and the Russians from uh, poaching more territory from what used to be the Soviet Union. Uh, and so that is a development that involves Canada, and Canada's contribution there is quite meaningful. I'm already at two minutes, wow. Uh, I didn't think I had much to say. Um, I guess the one thing that I have a problem with in this document is that uh, one of the constant refrains in, during the su last summer was that Canada needed to be a flexible force, uh, full-spectrum military. Luckily, in this document, they got rid of all that full-spectrum language, which drove me crazy, because we don't have aircraft carriers, we don't have helicopters, uh, attack helicopters, we don't have uh, uh, ballistic missiles. We don't have a whole lot of things. So Canada does not have a full-spectrum military. We've made choices in the past. What's most striking about this document, as far as I can tell, no choices were made. No hard choices were made. That the defense minister ruled out cutting military bases. That wonderful map that, that we had up earlier shows lots of military bases, lots of them, more, far more than I was expecting. I think, isn't that what each flag means is a military base, Andrea? Yeah. Do we need that many? Yes. No, we don't. The politicians may need that many. We do not need that many. Uh, just like in the United States, where closing military bases is unpopular because it means losing votes. Uh, the defense minister ruled that out before the, the, the review got underway. Um, I think if you take a look at the specifics in the document, I've asked the question, what things did the um, Army, Navy, and Air Force not get in this document? And so far, the response has been crickets. They've, I've, I've not heard anything about stuff being ruled out. There's been no relative losses. The only thing I can imagine is that no, there's no discussion of, of, the, of a new submarine. But there's discussion of these submarines lasting to 2030, or mid-2030s. Um, good luck with that. Um, but otherwise, there's no hard choices. And this was a document that could have imposed some hard choices. And I've now faced a hard choice of running out of time. So uh, in sum, the world is not that threatening, yet the government is asking for a lot more money to spend on stuff. But as a result, I think the, the Kenny military will be able to do what it has been doing as w better, but it's not going to be doing much more stuff. And that makes sense. OK. I knew, I knew Steve would be the one to go over time. Uh, <laughs> it's all good. Thank you for that. Um, and uh, next up is Professor Elder Sloan, who's going to be talking about expeditionary analysis. Operations. Operations. <laughs> well, good morning, everybody. So I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about expeditionary missions in the Defense Policy Review. And this document is actually quite distinct from previous white papers in that it's not neatly divided into Canada, North America, and the rest of the world. That's what you normally expect, and that's what we've seen in the past. Rather, what this paper does is it adopts a new approach to defense. And it calls this new because they're focusing on anticipate, adapt, and act. All of this appears in chapter six. As Professor Sademan just mentioned, this document is, is written uh, almost in reverse order from your traditional defense policy document. So toward the end, chapter six, a new approach is anticipate, adapt, and act. 
One of the benefits of the approach within this chapter is that it serves to focus everyone on the dramatically increased need for intelligence gathering, for uh, situational awareness, as was already mentioned uh, by some other folks on the panel, uh, intelligence gathering assets, both for domestic and expeditionary purposes. So the anticipate section includes things like next generation Aurora aircraft, like the uh, long range patrol aircraft, a follow on, I haven't seen that before. Talks about an unmanned aerial vehicles, uh, which have been promised for many years, but is much more specific in terms of medium high altitude drones. So I am surprised and happy to see these things in the document. Other components fall into that anticipate section. Basically knowing what's going on, situational awareness, intelligence gathering. So then there's the adapt section into which, uh, so I, I have my finger on the, uh, try not, I'll try not to touch this. <laughs> so there's the adapt section um, into which there are many important things that, that are in my view kind of artificially stuffed. So the ADAPT section of Chapter 6 has uh, the reserve, space, cyber, UAVs again, uh, defense procurement, the Arctic, and a whole bunch of other things. And finally, we get to the ACT section, and that's where expeditionary operations uh, figure most prominently. Uh, the policy identifies eight core missions of the Canadian Forces, uh, three of which pertain to overseas operations. So those... those uh, Three are lead or contribute forces to NATO and coalition efforts against adversaries, state and non-state. Lead or contribute to international peace operations and engage in capacity building. So three of those eight core missions pertain to expeditionary operations, operations over there. Under ACT, the defense policy also identifies a lengthy list of overseas operations that it says Canada will be able to undertake simultaneously. So these operations are basically divided into to somewhat bigger and somewhat smaller. Now bigger, it means 500 to 1,500 people, and smaller is 100 to 500, uh, to 15, 100 to 500 people. So 500 to 1,500 and 100 to 500. So bigger and smaller, and it divides it also into sustained and time-limited. So what it says is two sustained of those larger deployments plus one time-limited of the larger deployments, two sustained smaller deployments, and two time-limited smaller deployments. Now, I really wish I had thought to put a slide on this. And finally, a disaster assistance response team and a non-combatant evacuation operation. So if you add up all of those simultaneous operations, you're actually coming up to nine different types of mission. Uh, that's over and above in addition to our NATO uh, commitments and also Article 5, uh, so our NORAD commitments and Article 5 NATO. All of that's in there. So in a nutshell, the document commits the CF uh, that's what the document commits the CF to with respect to expeditionary ops. Let me make a few observations. I'll make six observations if I have time. So the first one is with regard to that long list of missions that are supposed to be done simultaneously. I think that an understandable initial reaction to that list is, uh, you know, that's crazy, how can we do that much? But the numbers that are given are actually quite small. Recall the larger mission is 500 to 1,500 personnel, and then there's the smaller ones. 
The commitment, if you go back to the 1994 defense white paper, is quite a bit larger. Uh, that white paper says one mission, but of 10,000 people, uh, and including sea, land, and air forces. It's probably doable if you look at the actual size of the missions. Now, this document does not divide things into air, land, and sea operations, unlike the uh, 94 white paper. A second point is it talks about a new category of overseas mission. The paper says that the eight core missions are new, says all of them are new, but in fact they're basically the same as the six core missions that we found in the Canada First Defence Strategy. They're just uh, rearranged or stated slightly differently. The only truly new mission of these eight core missions is defence capacity building. And this has been a growing focus of NATO over the last several years, but last five years, you hear more and more about defense capacity building, basically building the capacity of countries to address their own security concerns uh, rather than NATO having to fight the wars for them. It's a reaction to war exhaustion uh, in Afghanistan, Syria, Iraq, and Libya, a big component of what NATO is doing. So you see that in this paper. Uh, speaking of NATO, there is, a, my third point is there's a strong commitment to NATO in this defense policy statement, and this is very different for, from some of the previous white papers. If you go back to the 71 defense white paper of Trudeau Sr., the 94 white paper of Chrétien, or even the Harper paper of 2008, the commitment in this paper is much stronger. Uh, Trudeau Sr. gave qualified support to NATO, uh, Chrétien lumped the UN and NATO together. And Harper didn't even really mention NATO in the 2008 Canada First Defence Strategy, which I actually hadn't realized till I went back and took a look at it a couple of days ago. So by contrast, this paper explicitly states Canada's commitment to NATO allies under the Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty, and it stresses that the CF will contribute actively and talks about the uh, leadership role that Canada is playing in, in uh, Latvia. Fourth, the document restates that Canada is prepared to, talk, to participate in UN uh, peace operations. It says that Canada will make tangible value-added contributions to these operations. It identifies leadership positions, it says uh, possible ground troops and critical enablers has a strong focus on peace support operations. And I thought that that was kind of surprising. The Liberals have been promising this mission for well over a year now, uh, and the delay, we're not exactly sure why, but uh, has come out recently probably due to a recalibration of, in light of the Trump election, but also due to a steep learning curve on uh, the part of the government as to how difficult modern peacekeeping is. At this point, a concrete commitment, a commitment to a UN mission doesn't seem to be around the corner anytime soon. And what I was expecting to see in this document is sort of a quiet downplaying of that earlier commitment, uh, much as the government is suddenly silent on that much touted fighter capability gap of, of uh, not too long ago. Fifth point is that the document says in several places that Canada will invest in multi-purpose combat-ready forces. And the wording is notable. The term we have seen many times in the past is combat-capable. And this document says <coughs> that, that, that the uh, military will be combat-ready. The CDS has stressed that combat-ready is a 
significant term as compared to combat capable. And he says that that's because it's part of a, the output nature of this policy as opposed to an activity-based policy. And you can see that in this document. Outputs, this is what we're going to do, this is what we're going to do, rather than focusing on, on general statements. And finally, just a general observation. This document must be seen in light of and connected to the speech by Minister Freeland. This was already mentioned by Professor Carvin earlier. The, the, and so she made the speech the day before this defense policy was, was released. The defining sentence in her speech was the need for Canada to, quote, set our own clear and sovereign course on the world stage as a result of declining U.S. interest in global leadership. Uh, the commitments in this defense policy must be seen as a key component of the government's ambition for a new enhanced role uh, for Canada. And I saw that there was actually an op-ed on this in the New York Times uh, one or two days ago. So those are just a few observations on the expeditionary component of the new defense policy. And I look forward to your questions and the discussion coming up after we hear from Dr. Stevenson. Thank you. Thank you very much. We now have, um, so it's, it's both doctor and colonel retired, Alan Stevenson, I think you win for longest title on the panel, uh, who will be speaking about force readiness. They've given a fighter pilot a bigger crayon, that's all it means. <laughs> Batting um, uh, clean up here, I, maybe we should get a stretch break first, but uh, my uh, topic of uh, force readiness provides the opportunity uh, to discuss the government's role in preparing the military as an element of national power. There are three levels of uh, force readiness to consider, strategic, operational, and unit. The operational and unit readiness levels are the purview of the military commanders, where the government and the military are in a symbiotic relationship at the strategic level. The CDS provides professional advice and executes the government's direction, while the Prime Minister and Cabinet determine the force's uh, strategic direction, and provide the cash, capabilities, and commitment to enable the military to do its job. It is at this interface that the force readiness suffers most in Canada. The strategic pieces announced by the government this month were timely and coherent as they provide a strategic direction and represent the first steps in achieving force readiness. Minister Freeland's articulation of Canada's uh, foreign policy was bold, clear, and well overdue in acknowledging Canada's responsibility to protect the international multilateral institutions that Canada helped create. Her key messages were designed to explain the significant shift in the liberal power position regarding Canada's role in the international system, as Stephanie mentioned, and to prepare Canadian public for the sticker shock that such changes would entail when calling for the necessary investments in the military. The explicit roles she outlined for Canada to pursue are solid, revolving around two principles the defense of inherent values found in liberal democracies, and the support of the global economic system that sustains them. However, implicit in both the global affairs and defense policy statements was a larger issue of policing the international system that's largely been left to others. Minister Freeland's hyperbole that suddenly the existence of an international rules-based order that Canada basically requires in order to survive is now under threat was interesting, as it understood, uh, underscored precisely why the United States has consistently called on others to do their fair share in policing the international order. There's a need to change the national security paradigm to include Canada's role in the protection of a rules-based international system. 
It is a multilateral institutions and international society that allows Canada's peace and prosperity and should be viewed as a core uh, defense mission. Others should not solely bear the burden of supplying Navy ships to enforce the UN Convention's Law of the Sea, nor fighter aircraft uh, to protect ICAO agreed airspace from illicit foreign incursions. These tools are expensive and necessary, beyond the simply uh, self-defense of Canada. This responsibility to protect post-World War II global system is at the heart of Personian internationalism, not simply peacekeeping. Logically following the foreign uh, policy statement, the defense policy was surprisingly clear, pragmatic policy statement that provides realistic and somewhat affordable framework to achieve strategic readiness, where future Canadian governments will have the necessary tools available to defend Canada and its global interests. It reinforced the need to reinvest in Canada's core combat capabilities while articulating the need to expand into areas of emerging importance such as intelligence, space and cyber to deal more effectively with change. It's not my intent to comment on each operational capability other than to say that the long-term investments identified in the defence policy are well thought through and on the whole quite balanced between replacement and life extension of equipment. Should this strategic policy plan come to fruition, the military commanders will be in a very good position to generate operational readiness well into the future with the proposed increases in defence spending. Now that the Prime Minister and Cabinet have set the strategic policies and identified the required capabilities, the government needs to provide the cash and commitment to achieve strategic military readiness. To make this uh, work every dollar, no, every defence dime needs to count. Herein lies the challenge for turning strategic framework into a blueprint for success. This defence policy statement is no different than many prior defence policies that were raised and ignored as the other panellists have discussed. Canada recently experienced the Ministry of Strategic Readiness with the loss of the auxiliary oil replenishment ships. Without the AORs, the Canadian government is no longer able to call upon an independent Navy task force. It is not as though this need to replace the AORs was not predicted, but the need was ignored by successive governments until the platform failed. The fighter force is on the verge of a similar fate. Why does this happen? The, the culture of national security in Canada is such that Canadians are comfortable in their fireproof house, so to speak. Secure on all three sides by ocean approaches and a friendly neighbour on the fourth. As such, defence and foreign policy are not high in the minds of the average Canadian when it comes to contestation of values and resource extraction in the political arena. Politicians know that there are few votes to be had in this area and find it easy to use the largest discretionary funds available for parochial party purposes. This has led to the politicization of defence expenditures where previous government chose to balance budgets with defence funds. The present government prefers to fund social programs both contributing to declining strategic readiness by failing to heed expert advice. Actions speak louder than words and the credibility of this government is now at stake. It's difficult to square the circle on Minister Freeland's call to for the use of hard power and the new defence policy statement with the government's actions to date. The Prime Minister's position on CF-18s in Iraq was driven by political gamesmanship initiated when he used the feminist analogy to contrast the Harper government's testosterone-laden use of CF-18s with the Liberal Party's nurturing humanitarian values. Despite the fact that the fighters were conducting a classic battlefield air interdiction mission to stop a rolling army from committing genocide, well within the Liberal Party's values on responsibility to protect R2P, the Prime Minister withdrew the hard power contribution without explanation. The politicization continued with the announcement of the purchase of 18 Super Hornets as an interim solution, which required the creation of alternative facts to justify the sole sourcing decision. 
In fact, the CF-18 replacement is a great study of how political interference directly diminishes strategic and operational readiness. There is no capability gap, and there is no need for an interim solution. There is no military requirement, nor economic justification for an interim solution. It's all political. An interim purchase will take years to implement and hollow out the RCF as personnel and resources become overtaxed. The RCF is the only source for trained pilots and technicians to teach, and attrition is currently greater than production. Time is a critical factor in growing new trained effective strength, and supporting two fighter fleets will only exacerbate the regeneration problem. This is not the time to introduce a new capability that diminishes force generation for other than a final solution. An interim solution is not productive, are cost-effective and will cause two significant reductions in operational readiness as both interim and final capabilities are transitioned. The cumulative effect will have the unintended consequence of reducing fighter force strategic readiness for long periods of time. With huge inconsistencies in the government's actions and Minister Freeland and Sajin's words, the question of whether the government is ragging the puck, so to speak, conveniently postponing spending until the next election in the hope that the American demand will go away, is high in analysts' uh, minds. It is the three C's, cash, commitment, and capability, where we will see the government, whether the government is serious about force readiness. Every defense dime counts. Smart decisions need to be made. Actions speak louder than words, and greater commitment up front would indicate serious intent. The three top short-term ways to increase force readiness would be to, firstly, inject a significant amount of cash up front to maximize current operational readiness postures and increase trained effective strength to prepare for the introduction of these new platforms. Secondly, immediately repudiate the Super Hornet buy to regain credibility and cancel the interim fire fighter solution with the intention of going to competition within two years. And thirdly, with the need to reduce the parochial politicization of the defense procurement decisions, create a whole of government tiger team and working groups that include PCO, Treasury Board, uh, Public Services Procurement, and DND to clean up the procurement system and get national shipbuilding uh, strategy online soonest. Well, the liberal debates uh, favor, uh, internal debates favor those who argue for long-term good governance or those who support uh, short-term poll-driven uh, political opportunism. To make this defense policy statement a reality, there will need to be strong political will coupled with robust sustainable blueprint for action with achievable objectives and measurable milestones during this mandate. Ultimately, Canada needs to take uh, the political gamesmanship out of the uh, defense policy process through parliamentary reform if Canada is to achieve strategic and operational readiness that survives electoral cycles and ensures Canada remains strong, secure, and engaged. Thank you. Okay, I would like to thank the panelists for uh, sticking to time for the most part, which is leaving us lots of uh, time for questions. Uh, I'm just going to make a few comments on what we've heard. So I would say that in the panel, what I've seen are basically uh, uh, maybe two to two, two and a half themes emerging. The first being, to what example, to what extent was this uh, inspired by Trump, not inspired by Trump? Um, it seems to be that you know we have a document that you know, if, if Trump didn't exist, would the document still look the way it does? Well, there's good arguments to suggest that actually it would, but that, you know, within the context of Freeland's speech, that still makes us perhaps read the document slightly different than what we would have, say, had the result been different last November. 
Um, the argument about new versus not new, or this is where the point five comes in, is this transformation versus not transformation? Uh, a lot of people saying, well, this is actually all stuff that we had before, but in some ways it could also be seen as a radically new concept for the armed forces. Um, the second thing is all panelists mentioned, intelligence, uh, cyber, space, and uh, although we really didn't get into too much about what that, that means, um, the two aspects that I think maybe weren't discussed that I would be interested in are artificial intelligence and unmanned. And, you know, in some ways unmanned, you know, it is just being able to do a lot of the things that we do now with robots. Um, but the fact is, if we're looking at unmanned technologies, it's, they still are in a lot of ways uh, new. We don't have great experience procuring them yet. We can look at the Just Ask programs for the armed drone program if you need any proof of that. Um, but also, you know, these new technologies require new doctrine, new training. Uh, the amount of, of effort that's going to have to go into actually bringing them into the Canadian Armed Forces and have them uh, work seamlessly, having, you know, I think what we're going to be seeing is unmanned and manned teams working together. Do we have the doctrine for that now? I'm not sure. Um, and how do we actually bring about it? Uh, the fact, the and Steve touched on this a little bit, the fact that uh, this new technology, AI and unmanned, that's going to have a huge impact on recruiting demographics. And if you bring this up to special operations forces, they get very mad at you because they still insist that everyone has to be able to run a two-minute mile. Um, but if in cyber war, you know, you're, you're traveling at the speed of light. So that's going to have a change on the demographics, whether, the, whether or not the special operations forces like it or not. Um, and finally, um, this issue of procurement. One of the issues that, you know, we often blame the politicians. Kim Richard Nossel wrote a very passionate book about this last year. I think it's very good, and I would commend it to you. Uh, it's called Charlie Foxtrot. Um, but with regards to procurement, and I got a lot of questions about this in the media, um, you know, why did they pushed all the spending to the back, and that's a political thing because it's close to the election or after the election, and that's when the liberals can renege on their promises. Yes, that's true, but I would also suggest that one of the areas we've fallen down on procurement is actually we don't have the people to actually procure things. Um, we actually need to spend this next two years hiring and training the people to actually go and procure the things that we need. We don't have it right now, so if we immediately injected billions of dollars into our defense budget, I'm not sure it would be spent. I'm, I'm not sure we'd actually put us on track any faster. We need to actually build the capacity just to buy the things to get us capacity. So I think that's that would be the only other comment I have. Uh, that being said, I've already probably taken uh, Chair's prerogative a little too far, but uh, if you see me on Twitter, I really don't, I'm not good at being quiet. So um, what I'm going to suggest is that if you could please line up at the microphone with your question. Again, introduce yourself, uh, say who you are, what you represent, and then a brief question. That would be great. And I think the panelists will remain seated, but I'll, I will steal this microphone so we can pass it along.